few months back, and as is my practice, I, I, I do a lot of my reading and prep for sermon on my own, but when it comes time for the writing and the putting together and the bringing it all together, I've usually found that by myself is not a good place to be. Um, I get too distracted or, or I need more caffeine than I have here at the office or whatever. So I, I usually go to a coffee shop. And, and, and that's also fun because you never really know what's going to happen when you're there. And this was one of those weeks. Um, I, I go into kind of a usual place. And when I get in there, it's super busy because it's rainy and cold. So this was a few months back. Um, maybe a lot of months back. Uh, but I go in there and it's kind of rainy and cold and the place is just packed. And I kind of, I guess I had that look of like, great, what am I going to do now? Because almost immediately this, this young lady says, hey, I'm, I'm only using half this table. Do you want to use either half the table? And I said, oh, thank you very much. That'd be great. And so, you know, I set my stuff down and, and, you know, evidently she can be trusted because by the time I get back with my Americano, all my stuff is still there, which is a good sign. And, and so we start sitting down and working and, and, you know, we kind of, you know, we exchange the pleasantries and then we get to work, right? So we're working for about a half an hour or whatever. And, and, uh, and then we kind of notice she's got these massive textbooks huge and i'm like so so you do in school she's like yeah i'm I'm, I'm actually working on on my doctoral thesis and i'm like oh okay all right tell me what it's about you know and she tells me what it's about and i cannot even begin to fathom how to repeat it to you um, because it has something to do with neuroscience and i'm like okay so it's how your brain works good okay got it um awesome she goes i noticed you have a whole lot of books what are you working on i'd say well i'm writing a sermon and she goes oh okay And that's the response I usually get. But after about a minute and a half, she goes, can I, can I ask you a question? And I'm like, oh, sweet, here it comes. All right. You know, and, and I don't know. I am one of those people that says, oh, sweet, here it comes. Other people are like, oh, no, here it comes. I, I don't know who you are. But I, I was excited about it. And I said, sure, you can ask me a question. And she goes, well, see, here's the thing. And she launches into like a half an hour of talking to me about this situation in her life where someone has had power over her and made her just feel very helpless and very afraid. I mean, and she's diving into this right in the middle of the coffee shop. I don't even really know this person. And she is starting to weep and she is starting to cry. And I'm going, okay, when I said, oh, sweet, uh, here it comes, this was not... I thought we were going to talk about something theological. I didn't know I was moving into pastoral counseling. So I'm having to like, I'm, I'm switching my mindset midstream. I'm doing all this stuff. I'm like, okay, here we go. And as she, un, as she kind of lays this story out for me, I am like, I have no idea what I am supposed to do here. It becomes very apparent very quickly. I have no idea. And I'm, and I'm kind of like, okay, all right. We're gonna we're just gonna kind of push forward anyway, and so as as she begins to express the fear that still lives in her, the fear that still seems to just hang on her, we begin to talk about the idea of peace. And I you know and I just say like I, I don't know how to undo what was going on, and I don't and I I'll be honest I don't know how to undo the place where you live now. Here's what I do know. Here, here's what I do know. And we start talking about we start talking about God as a source of peace, and and how maybe peace looks a little bit different than what you what you might think peace looks like. 
um, and, and that and that and that Jesus has come to bring a redeeming peace that that isn't based on it isn't based on your circumstances being all right, but but it's it's based on you being able to find a place of rest in the middle of your conflict and even in the middle of your struggle and even in the middle of your suffering. And it was a it was an amazing conversation, and we exchanged information, and, and she kind of did, you know I'd I'd love to talk with you more about this, and obviously it's been months, and and that has not happened. Maybe it will someday. I don't know. I can't really know what I can't really know what the outcome of that will be. All I know is that there was a there was a point in which I was invited to witness to somebody there in their circumstance. And by saying yes, I got myself into a situation that was very much outside of my ability to do anything. And so I had to look outside of myself in order to find the ability to be an effective witness. In the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about... My point is, I don't think this situation is... I don't think my situation is unique. I think a lot of times when we look at starting to find a way to talk to people about Christ, or we look at, at finding a way to to witness or we find ourselves in that situation where somebody does say hey can I ask you a question about your faith very quickly we find ourselves in situations where we say I have no idea what to do and I'm here to share some gospel with you this morning some good news you want to know what that good news is it's okay it's okay it is so all right to find yourself in that situation where you say I don't know what to do in fact, when trying to live out the gospel and trying to proclaim the gospel, I think maybe that could be one of the best places to find yourself. Because if it's just the gospel according to you, and according to your understanding, then it may not actually be the whole breadth of the gospel. We would kind of like God to inject his power into the gospel, wouldn't we? Not just my understanding, but, but my observing of the amazing things that God has done and is doing that maybe I can't even comprehend, but I can say, you know what, here's what I do know. Here's what I do know. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about witness, and, and, and we talked about defining it, and then last week, Daniel kind of came in and, and put Christ as the focus or, or the subject of our witness and I want to kind of continue on some of these thoughts about witness with you. And, and what I really want to talk about is, is out of this passage and another passage that, that Jesus speaks to the disciples about. Obviously, in this setting, Jesus is getting ready. He's kind of giving his last words to the disciples. And the thing that I think is really interesting is, is that in this time, Jesus really doesn't give them the kind of advice that I would give somebody if it was my last words to them. I'd be giving them a lot of marching orders. And in fact, he does that in other places. Like in in Matthew chapter 10, when he goes and sends out the 12 out ahead of him, he really does give them a lot of of specific marching orders. Like, go here, do this, act this way, be that. There's a whole lot of those kind of things. This is really not... John really doesn't look that way. But... He does say something really, really important. He says this. You have power from the Lord that is not of your own, and you are not alone. 
So when you find yourself in these situations where you're like, I don't know what to do, you're not alone. And in fact, he says the same thing back in Matthew chapter 10. If, we, if you go back with me to Matthew chapter 10, first realize that, that sending out, peop, sending out your, your disciples ahead of you if you're a rabbi, that's not a very uncommon practice. That's actually a very normal thing. It was almost kind of like giving a teaser or a preview of what your teaching was. You send, your, you send your disciples out into the towns ahead of you, and they say, Rabbi so-and-so is, is going to be coming through, and his message is, yeah. And they also are looking for hospitality. Um, if you notice a lot of, of, of Jesus' instructions to the disciples as he sends them out in Matthew 10 are about how to, how to know which town is going to be receptive and which town is not, and what do you do if a town's receptive and, and everything. Because there is kind of the practical standpoint of they're a bunch of itinerant preachers. They, they're, they're living off of the hospitality of others. And that's, that's completely normal in that society. But, but you needed to go to places where your hospitality was welcome because you didn't want to, you didn't want to go into a place where, where, where there was no hospitality for you. Because then you would kind of look like a religious huckster trying to, you know, people already needed to be welcoming you in before you could bring your message. So there's a practical standpoint to it, and it looks real practical. And then all of a sudden, Jesus, things take a twist for the apocalyptic, right in the middle of right in the middle of Matthew 10. Jesus all of a sudden starts talking about end times and persecution and last days, and and we're like, what happened? I thought we were just going out to talk to people about the kingdom of heaven being near. I thought you were just I thought we were just doing a little bit of promotional material for you, Jesus. What what's going on here? Why does, Jesus, why does Jesus speak to them in the way that he speaks there? Why does Jesus speak to them in the way that he speaks to them right before he's taken in John 15 and 16? Because it is a scary thing to have to go and speak and proclaim on your own about something that is greater than you. Especially a belief that is charged with so much power and so many possible implications. It is a scary thing. It was then, and it is now. And Jesus doesn't even deny that, that, that it's a scary thing either. You know, he, he starts out his phrase with, Go, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. That sounds fun. I'm excited. Who's with me? Uh, it, it, he, doesn't, he doesn't deny that it's a scary and difficult thing in order to witness, but he immediately backs it up with, but it's not you on your own. It's not me on my own. We are not witnessing out of our own power, and if we think that, that our job is to witness out of our own power, that is not the same as witnessing out of our own experience. Witnessing out of our own experience is saying, here's what I have seen God doing. Trying to witness out of our own power is saying, here's why I'm going to make you a Christian. You see the difference? And so instead, in both of these instances, Jesus starts painting a bigger picture for them. He paints a picture of a reality that, that says, okay, you know what? What I've been doing here, this has never been about political maneuvering. This has never just been about like fresh teaching, although it is fresh teaching. The power of Jesus' message is going to alter reality as the disciples know it and as we know it. And it is going to move Israel and the nations 
into their God-envisioned relationship with him, finally. And even though the disciples don't even necessarily understand what that is or how it will be accomplished, even at the point where Jesus is getting ready to be taken from him, he's like, I'm telling you I'm going away, and you guys aren't even asking the right questions. You're just kind of stunned and full of grief going, what is going on? And yet, and yet he says, even though you don't understand what kind of shape it's going to take, trust me, this is going to alter reality, and you're a part of it. You're a part of something much greater than yourself, so if you feel like it's greater than you, that's okay. That's exactly where you're supposed to be. And then he follows it up with this. The proof is, is my encouragement to you, as I send you out to proclaim my kingdom, is the ability of the Holy Spirit to be the power behind your witness. To overcome fear and reservation and to help the disciples then and to help us now articulate the message of Jesus in a world that is very soon going to become too antagonistic to anybody that proclaims his truth. Okay? And, again, you can kind of see some parallels. We live in a world where when we start to proclaim the truth of God, we get a lot of antagonism. We get a lot of blowback. We get a lot of friction for that. And the message to them is the same as the message to us today. The power of the Holy Spirit working in your witness will overcome your fear, will overcome your reservation, will bring about a witness that is powerful and effective. And let's kind of talk a little bit about what that looks like, okay? Because like I said, the last two weeks that we've been talking about witness, we kind of defined witness, and we noted the heart of Christianity has always been about experiencing the power of Jesus Christ. That means our witness as disciples, it's not about reciting a list of belief structures. It's not about citing a, a bunch of rules of do's and don'ts and how this works on a moral level or having better answers to all the questions of life than everybody else. What it is is showing what relationship with Jesus looks like in our life, saying, here is how he has changed me. All I know is that I was blind, but now I see, right? And this is what I've seen. And we proclaim with our mouths and lives how we've seen him at work in us. And and if anything, this means that we are introducing the world around us to a greater mystery, which I think is incredible. That, that instead we're asking people to draw into the mystery of Christ with us. And so it is, it is okay to not have the best answers all the time. Instead, to draw them into the mystery of the idea that the Spirit can come and move in your and my heart and change us to be like Christ so that we can be in relationship with God so that instead of this small temporal life, now all of a sudden we've been moved into a full and eternal life. See, even when I use those terms, we're so familiar with them, we just kind of go, oh, okay, yeah, of course. But did you hear what I just said? There is, there is a part of God that has moved into your life when you have come to believe that you cannot comprehend fully and that you cannot even see fully, and yet you know indwells inside of you. And not only it dwells inside of you, is actually changing everything about you in ways that you can't always see and in ways that you can't comprehend and has moved you out of time as you understand it into time that God understands it and life as you understand it into life that God understands it. Is anybody confused yet? I am. 
And I'm the one preaching. But if we're asking people to draw into a greater mystery, then we also have to believe that what makes that mystery effective is not just my ability to articulate it or my ability to reason my way out of that box. Or even worse, to try and push it all into a box that I can understand. And so the subject of our witness is something so much greater because it is the God-man, Jesus Christ. And how he is revealing himself to us and transforming our lives as a result. But then we have to ask this question, what is the heart of Jesus' identity? Because Jesus talks about giving them the Spirit and he says, the Spirit is going to take from what is me and from what is mine and make it known to you. He's going to do that. Now, here's, an, here's something interesting that I think, because we read that, and, and maybe we kind of feel like the Spirit has been relegated to kind of like third chair, okay? You've got the Father, and then you've got the Son, and then the Spirit is, you know, kind of under the Son, and, you know, the, the Son says to the Spirit, do this, and the Spirit goes okay and brings it to us. Let me have you understand, we'll do a little bit of Trinitarian theology here for a second, okay? There's no hierarchy, Everybody's submitting to everybody. Everybody's loving everybody the way that they should in the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And so everybody's putting everybody else first. So there really isn't a hierarchy. That's why Jesus can say the Spirit will not work on his own. He will only take what he understands and then, you know, what he has received and then pass it on to you. It's not that the, it's not that the, it's not that the Spirit is sitting underneath the Father and the Son. It's that the Spirit is willingly giving over to the Father and the Son, just as the Son is willingly giving over to the Father and the Spirit, just as the Father is pouring His love out into the Son and the Spirit. Okay, now are you really confused? No. Good. All right. I love it. Dean's tracking with me. This is good. But my point is, is that, is that if the Spirit is this gift from Jesus and this spirit has been working in Jesus well now all of a sudden we have to realize that that there are parts of Jesus that were completely empowered by the Holy Spirit too he's not telling us that we're getting a power that's any different from the power that he himself possesses jump back over with me to Isaiah real quick Isaiah chapter 11 this is this is what I'm talking about here okay we normally find ourselves reading this around Advent, around, you know, getting ready for Christmas time. And yet, there, a deeper reading of this shows that, that we're actually talking about the character of the Messiah. And what's particularly interesting is that the thing that distinguishes God's anointed servant, which was going to be the prototype for everything that Jesus is going to fulfill, is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord dwelling on, resting on. Read this with me, okay? Isaiah 11, 1 through 5. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a branch will bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. It is a spirit of wisdom and of understanding, a spirit of counsel and of might, a spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes, nor will he decide what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, 
he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. For righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness will be the sash around his waist. Okay. If this is describing the character of God's anointed, and we believe that this passage that Isaiah wrote that was talking, that, that again, in, in the time that he was writing, it was talking about this idea that hadn't even been fully formed yet of, of, of this Messiah, what it meant to be really anointed by God's presence. The Holy Spirit has to be the beginning of that anointing, of that power, of that presence, of all of it, of that character. And you see some really specific things. This verse really drives home a few important points about the role of the Spirit in the person of Jesus. Do you realize that it is the Spirit that is the source of Jesus' wisdom and understanding on earth? It says it right there. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, for it is a spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit becomes the source of Jesus' power on earth. The Spirit is what allows Jesus to resist temptation. It is a spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and allows him to delight in the fear of the Lord. He resists temptation and allows him even to delight in the difficult and sacrificial work that he is called to, even the road of the cross. It is by the Spirit that he is able to do that. It is by the Spirit that Jesus is able to see people and situations rightly. We go, how on earth did he come into Jericho and there's all these people all around him and all he sees is the guy up in the sycamore tree and says, you, Zacchaeus, you're the one that I'm supposed to minister to. How does he move through a crowd of people and be like, whoa, whoa, where's the woman who touched you? Right, come here. You know, like, how does he do that? It's not because he's like uber human. It's because he is so in touch with the Spirit. The Spirit is also the one that allows him to speak into those situations, to bring righteousness and justice to those who need it, especially those who are poor and outcast and outsider. And those are the hallmarks of Jesus' ministry. Are that those who think that they don't need him find themselves at odds with him. And those that think that there's no way that they could ever be accepted by him are the ones who find out that not only, not only is their need for him accepted, but he welcomes them in. It's the Spirit that allows him to do that. It's the Spirit that allows him to see people the way that the Father does and see situations the way that the Father does. And ultimately, it is the Spirit that empowers Jesus' speech and actions for righteousness. In essence, we see the Spirit as the source of Jesus' witness and teaching in life. Because as the Son, he is surrendering himself completely to the movement of the Spirit. And you and I go, okay, but there's a, there's, there's a deal here. I'm not Jesus. Uh, yeah, I know. I know. We do not have the benefit of being both Son of God and man together, right? And yet Jesus says we have access to the exact same power of God at work in us that he does. It has, it has to contend with our sin in a way that it didn't have to with him. But the power is still there. I really think it's interesting. It, it's all tied to a very, very important... This whole passage is tied to a really important statement in 11.2. The Spirit of the Lord 
resting on Jesus. This is not a passive word, okay? This is not, not the way that we think of rest. It's not like the Spirit kicked up its heels and, you know, hung out on the couch of Jesus' heart, okay? That's, that's not what we're talking about here. That word is actually tied to, it's the same word that describes the Spirit at creation that is resting, hovering over the chaos of unformed creation, anticipating and ready to order it and shape it into God's will, okay? That's the resting that we're talking about. It's also tied to that same word of, of, of the, uh, that we see numerous examples of in the Old Testament of the Spirit coming upon men and women for acts of righteousness or acts of power in the name of the Lord all the way through you know, the, the, the judges and the kings and, and the prophets and everyone. We see this Spirit of the Lord coming on people, resting on people. The cool thing is, is that with, with this example of Jesus, the Spirit rests on him and stays with him forever. And actually that becomes the gateway to the Spirit being able to rest on you and I and stay with us forever. It's not just situational. It's relational. It's with us all the time. It's constant. It's consistent. We actually have an advantage that people before Jesus didn't have because the Spirit would come on people at certain times for certain acts. But we have the Spirit resting on us all the time. Every day. In every situation. Not just when we need to do something big and dramatic for Jesus. We have it resting on us all the time. There was a... But, but you have to understand just the ability of what, what the Spirit does for people. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's an early church writer called Gregory of Nanzanzius. And, and he, he wrote this. He said, If the Spirit takes hold of a shepherd, he makes him a psalmist, able to subdue evil spirits with song, and he proclaims him a king. If he takes hold of a goat herder or someone who goes out and is a picker of figs for a living... He creates prophets that shepherd and challenge the kings of the realm of Israel. If he takes possession of fishermen, he makes them catch the whole world. If he takes possession of a tax collector, he turns them into a merchant of souls. The Spirit does amazing things with people, with ordinary people. This idea of the Spirit resting is an active thing, and the idea is really more of an indwelling and an inspiring. That the Spirit becomes a force of unhindered action for the will of God in the life of humanity, in the life of you and me. And this may be the most important thing that we often forget about the Spirit. The things He's done with Jesus, He has the ability to do in you and I. We have access to that same transformation and witness. But what does that power and witness look like? See, this is where I think we get tripped up. Because I think many times we think of it portrayed as these huge big things. Because of the models that we choose to use. We, we, use, we use Jesus as a model. We use the church in Acts as a model. And, and we have to understand, Luke's snapshot of the early church. The book of Acts is full of extended speeches about the gospel. These, these big, well-put-together sermons that are just airtight and foolproof and compelling all the time. They never mess up. They never stumble over their words. They never say anything superfluous. They're incredible, right? And and there are these miraculous events that confirm the power of Jesus' resurrection to the ancient world. These are all true, valid, powerful examples of the Spirit at work. And Luke intended them to be that way when he recorded them. But we, I think, 
we have come then to associate the Spirit's power with things that are out of touch with our everyday lives. That the movement of the Spirit is about big, airtight, proclaiming sermons or, or, or big, huge, amazing miracles. And we don't know how to connect it into our everyday life anymore. And I want us to understand that we must get a good grasp on what on what the Spirit living in our everyday looks like in order for it to be a power in our witness. Because otherwise we're sitting around doing nothing with Him. Waiting for like that one time when He's going to do something really big. And then because we don't really know Him, we haven't really interacted with Him, we don't know how to we don't know how to get his help when we have the opportunity. In fact, given some of the strange models that we see at work in modern Christianity at times, I think sometimes we know more about what we don't want the spirit to look like in our lives than what we do want him to look like in our lives, all right? And so I want to go elsewhere just for a second as we kind of wrap up and move to the application of this to look at, at two similar but very different people in the Old Testament that let the Spirit be the power of their witness in ways that we could connect with maybe a little bit more. If you look in the book, in the books of First and Second Kings, okay, there it, we see a political, the more that I look at it, the more I see a political and cultural landscape that looks a whole lot like the one that we're living in, Okay. I realize it's ancient Israel. I realize there are a lot of differences, but boy, there are a lot of similarities. Religion is sitting highly in the margins of their lives. It's either kind of a superstition or it's a blending of cultural traditions masquerading as faith. Um, Power and wealth have become the real gods of society there. The government there is more concerned with keeping the institution rolling and lining their own pockets than actually pursuing justice or mercy. The rich keep getting richer, the poor keep getting poorer, and despite the seeming advances of society, humanity is not living up to their ideals at all. Okay? I'm talking about first and second kings. How very interesting. Okay. And it's in that environment that we see God letting his spirit rest on two individuals, one named Elijah and one named Elisha. The Apostle James, in his letter, goes to great lengths to remind us that Elijah was just a man like us. And it's really important because of some of the things that he does. Okay? Both of these guys, both Elijah and Elisha, eagerly pursue the Spirit's calling, and they fight to let him have unhindered action and attention in their lives. And they're both very, very human, okay? Elisha gets really mad at some guys one time and, uh, you know, just pops off at them. And the next thing you know, like, bears are coming out of the woods after him. It's a really weird verse. Actually ties a lot into, like, stuff in Leviticus and Numbers if you dig deep enough into it. Okay, it's not that it's not that God's just like, oh, you made fun of my prophet, bears. Rah! You know, like, that's not what that passage is about at all, okay? I just want to say that right now. But, you know... Elisha gets angry and pops off. Elijah at one point is like, I've had it, and just like leaves and runs into the desert for a while, and God has to kind of like coax him back into ministry. He has to have this like special alone time with God in order to be able to come back in and do what do his job again. They're not they're not perfect people at all. 
and yet they fight to let God have his way in their lives, and he does it in two very different ways. Elijah is kind of the mouthpiece for God in First and Second Kings. Okay, he he comes in and directly confronts injustice. I think I think I think Elijah's kind of the extrovert. He would be the one that would say, "Okay, I can stand up and tell all of you exactly what's going on, and I don't care about your criticism, and I don't even care if you're the king and you're gonna you know say, oh, oh look, it's my old enemy, the prophet.' You're like, yeah, you betcha. Here I come again. That's Elijah's personality." And he comes out and he calls out false behavior and he calls out irreverence and he establishes God's word among the rulers and the rich and he becomes a proclaimer of truth with his voice. And then you look at Elisha, his protege, and Elisha doesn't look anything like him. Elisha makes no extended speeches. There are no big standoffs between Elisha and the king. Okay? Instead, like, in fact, you really see Elisha doesn't talk much at all. Instead, what Elisha, and he, and he never really enters the court of the king either. I mean, he actually has envoys that, that go do that for him. He actually spends most of his time kind of out by himself. With, his, with you know, He's got his group of, of guys that, that he kind of rolls with, but, but he doesn't get into society very much. Instead, what you see Elisha doing is his work, is out as, his work as a prophet is out in the margins. And, and the work that the Spirit does through him is very action-oriented. He relieves debt. He shows hospitality. He includes outsiders in the plans of God, even generals in the army of the enemies of God. Come to him kind of like, yeah, I'm sure, yeah, right, you can heal me, whatever. And Elisha goes, of course I can, because my God loves you. And he does, right? And it's incredible. It makes no sense for the general of the Assyrian army to be healed by Yahweh. And yet that's the, that's the message that Elisha proclaims, right? And, and, and generally, Elisha spends his time being this vessel of mercy-bearing activity. And that's how he witnesses to the world around him. Two very, very different ways of being a witness. Both very valid. Both using very human people. And so I think this gives us two really, really important principles when we look at the idea of letting the Holy Spirit be the power behind our witness in daily life. Like Elijah, the Spirit gives us the words to speak truth into the situations around us. And that doesn't always look like big extended speeches, okay? Because there's a couple of times where Elisha just, the, the truth that Elisha needs to speak is just to one person, Right? Just, just to a grieving widow, or just, just to, you know, or, or just to somebody that needs that, another prophet that needs encouragement. I mean, there, there are those stories, right? But, but Elijah allows himself to be a mouthpiece of the truth. When he sees areas where the truth of God has not permeated someone's life, he comes alongside them, and he is a mouthpiece for God's truth. And that is a great way to allow, you know, when we, and a challenge for us, I think, when we see areas where God's truth has not permeated the world around us. Are we willing to let the Spirit empower us to speak truth into that situation? But then the other way, I think, is just as important. Because if all we do is go around speaking truth, speaking truth, speaking truth, speaking truth, then we come to a point where maybe nobody's really listening to us because we forget the other part of being a witness, which is being a, a, a vessel bearing the mercy of God. 
And that's where we see Elisha doing his work. It empowers us to be vessels of compassion. It empowers us to enter into the brokenness of others, to show unmitigated love. When, like when we move to help people that are outside, or people that are poor, or people that are helpless, or people that are hopeless. When we let those that seem to be enemies of God know that they're actually his children. That is Holy Spirit-empowered witness as well. Just as much as speaking. And a lot of times, being a vessel of mercy does not involve speaking at all. But it's a powerful, powerful witness. I think for the Spirit to be the power behind our witness, He must first be known. He is a person. He is not a concept. He is not a force. And like any person, cannot be reduced to a formula. Neither can the Spirit. If we try to reduce Him to a formula, we grieve ourselves and we grieve Him. And so really the challenge that I want to leave us with, and I, and I know I'm just scratching the surface on the Holy Spirit thing, okay? Like just barely, right? But if we really want a witness that's empowered by the Holy Spirit, the first thing we must do is to seek Him daily and connect Him into our everyday experience again. to be more intentional about that. I think I think that means, I think there's specific things that we can do that, that do that. One, when is the last time that we have actively sought guidance from the Spirit in the little things, or just actively asked the Spirit to be guided by Him throughout the course of our day? I know we sometimes hit these big things and we say, okay, what should I do? But but how do we, how, have we made a rhythm of regularly asking the Spirit to guide our steps? Because as he guides us, we know him better. As he already knows us. About seeking to recognize and remove things that are an obstacle to his unchallenged access in our lives. As we get to know him more, as we ask him for guidance, he will help us bump up against those things and show us how to remove them. So that he can have more reign. More than anything, I think that's asking for that spirit of wisdom and understanding. Letting the spirit create a vision and a shape of what it looks like for us to walk in step with him. That's how we get to know him better. It's a day-by-day thing. How do you get to know a person better? You spend time with them. How do you get to know a person better? You converse with them. You communicate with them. You, get to, you, you allow yourself open access to that person. You allow them open access to you, right? So it is with the spirit. And that doesn't just transform us as disciples, that also transforms our witness into something much greater than us. So that when we find ourselves in those situations where we say, I don't know what to do, we already know that we are not alone. We already know that we have an advocate. We already know that we have one that takes the unknowable and makes it known through us to others. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you uh, I thank you so much for your great gift of the Holy Spirit. And Spirit, I thank you for 
your desire to dwell in us, for your for your desire to 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 even move into the mess of our lives and stay with us. And and I want to get to know you better. And I want our congregation to get to know you better. Not not just for the purpose of, of being a good witness, but just for the purpose of knowing you and being in relationship with you and being intimate with you and letting you direct our steps better. Because we want the peace that you afford. We want the life that you bring. And so help us not to just look around for you wildly when we bump up against something that that unsettles us. Help us to look for you in the day-to-day. Help us to look for you in the little things. Help us to to seek your face in the morning and and to walk with you throughout the day. To work more and more to give you unrestricted access to our heart. Thank you for being so near to us even in ways that we can't always describe or understand. And thank you for being that power that that when we don't know, and when we find ourselves unable, we know that you do know, and we know that you are able, because you have all the power of the Father, and you have all of what is known as the Son. You've made it accessible to us. Thank you for that great gift. By your power, we are even able to pray this in the name of the Son. Amen.